we've been studying the Gospel of Luke, and we are in chapter 12, as the reading shows you. In the context of where we are, chapter 12, really it begins, I think, in, in verse 13, because someone in the crowd interrupts Jesus in his teaching and says, hey, settle a dispute between me and my brother. To which Jesus says, look, I, that's not why I'm here. I'm not here to settle your petty disputes about money and your greediness. Apparently, the man had a problem with greed because Jesus tells a story about greed. He gives the parable of the, the rich guy who had so much money. I know you can all relate to this. Just so much wealth. Let's knock down our little houses, build bigger houses so we can have room for all our, our stuff. And Jesus tells this guy, though he's putting things away for, uh, uh, to live the easy life, because a man says, I want to do this to eat, drink, and be merry. He didn't say, I want to be wealthy and build bigger places to the glory of God. It was for his own benefit. And that shows you the sin of it. It's not retirement. It's not having a lot of money that's bad. If you work hard, you should have a lot of money. Well, let me say that. I mean, some of you work hard and you're going, well, what's wrong with me? I don't you can have a lot of money. Jesus doesn't condemn that. But what are you going to do with it? Jesus condemns greed. And he tells them, look, get away from all the who gets what and who has what garbage. That's greed. And he tells them in verse 22 of chapter 12, don't worry about your life. Greedy people want to try to stockpile enough money to where they're okay and they're, they're, all their trust and their faith is in their bank account. It's in their 401k. I'm I'm set for life. Forget everybody else. I'm set. I'm okay. Jesus says, no, you're not to live like that or worry about your life. And then in verse 32, he says, not only don't be greedy and don't worry, but don't be afraid in verse 32. Don't be afraid. And so when he gets in verse 35, he's telling them, don't be greedy and don't worry and don't be afraid. I'm coming back. I'm the master. And he gives this illustration of a master leaving the house and what happens when the master leaves the house the the servants are supposed to be prepared for his return that's what jesus said those who are ready when i get back and you don't know when i'm coming back because no one knows when the master is going to come back in this little illustration or parable i should say that jesus teaches he said but for those who are ready it's going to be a really good day for them when i get back because he says when i get back i'm going to serve them they're going to be ready to serve me I'm going to serve them. And that's the second coming of Christ. For those who are eagerly awaiting Christ's return. If you weren't here last week, you hadn't read it before. This is such a beautiful, I mean, it's all beautiful passage. I don't want to separate one over the other. But when Jesus returns, those of us who are waiting for it, who are expecting it, looking forward to it, he's going to serve us. Can you imagine such a thing? I sat with an atheist years ago when I was a counselor with Montgomery County Youth Services. And he was a smart aleck, and he was in my office, and he kept looking at me, and he said, you know, why would I want to go to heaven and serve, his words, when I can go be with Satan and be served? Well, you talked me out of it. There you go. I was foaming at the mouth. Come with you. Why? So doesn't that answer it? Shouldn't we all just now want to go to hell where we can be served by other people who are in hell? I don't really want to be with the other people in hell. I don't care. I'm not even quite sure I would trust what they're serving me. I have a hard enough time with the people down the street at the restaurant. No, I'm, I'm fine with going and serving Christ, but he says he's going to serve us. I kind of enjoy, my wife might be 
excited to hear this or, or stunned a bit, but I kind of enjoy serving my wife. I want to make sure she doesn't say anything out loud or anything, but it's nice to serve. You feel good about it. They like you more. That's really the better part. If you serve somebody, they like you more. And that's what we're after. Jesus is saying, when I return for those eagerly awaiting me, I'm going to serve you at this great feast. But for those who are not waiting for me, there is literally hell to pay. Literally hell to pay. And Jesus speaks of perhaps different degrees of hell to pay. Because some were, some are cut to pieces there in verse 46. Others receive many lashes. Others receive a less horrible lashing. It's called a flogging. But they're still not with Jesus. They weren't waiting for him. So we see judgment here. And so when he gets to verse 49, our text today... He says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. That fits the context of judgment. At the end of that context we looked at last week, those people that weren't waiting him, awaiting his return, there's going to be judgment. Now that's not a very fun topic for people today. People don't want to talk about judgment. We want a God who who is really just always happy and wants to give everybody good things all the time. That's a blatant violation of the first commandment. No other gods before God. I am the Lord your God, God said. You'll have no other gods before me. Don't make one up. People make up gods all the time, don't they? Gods that they feel very comfortable with. This is my God. You can have your God, I'll have my God. And that's true. God, we can have whatever God we want until it's all over. God gives us that freedom. You want to make your own God, make your own God. But he said, don't do it. When he returns, are you awaiting that God you made? Because that God doesn't exist. And Jesus said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. Now, fire can purify and fire can consume. Again, I think in the context, fire here is about uh, judgment. And so he's saying, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. I've come to judge. Read about Peter was listening carefully. I want you to turn over if you can find it. It's a second Peter. Uh, it's toward the end of your Bible. If you want to go all the way to the book of Revelation and go backwards, it might be beneficial. You go backwards from Revelation and you'll get to uh, Jude is the first one before Revelation and then third John, second John. These are all little short chapters. First John and there's second Peter. Second Peter. And Peter describes this fire that Jesus has come to bring. 2 Peter chapter 3. Let me know if you think that this is a prophecy that Peter has, uh, has gave in the first century that's actually come to pass in our day. 2 Peter 3 verse 3. Peter says this, Having heard Jesus say he's come to cast fire on the earth. 2 Peter 3 verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking. Has that happened? Following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. So he's talking about the creation of the world God made. He made the water, the world through water. Water abated, world came into being, and then God flooded it with water in Noah's day. That's what he's talking about through verse 6. 
Verse 7, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. It doesn't say one day is a thousand years to God. It's a simile. It's like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. It takes everything I have not to exegete that verse by verse. It's not the passage today. It's simply Peter saying, that's what's coming. The earth is going to be burned. Fire is coming. Fire of judgment. And Jesus is saying, back in Luke chapter 12, verse 49, I've come to cast fire on the earth. Other things. Here's other places that Jesus said what he came to do. All of which, when you put them together, says the same thing. In Luke 19.10, Jesus says, speaking of himself, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Seek and save that which is lost because he's coming to burn everything up with fire. He says in John 5, 43, I have come in my Father's name, announcing to Israel that he was the quote-unquote bread of life. Eat and partake of me and have eternal life and be spared the judgment. John 10, verses 10 through 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He says, I have come that my sheep might have life and have it to the fullest, have it abundantly. Anybody here into abundant life? That's why Jesus came, to give us abundant life so that when he comes to judge, we don't die over the course of eternity. In John 8, 12, Jesus came into the world as the light of the world, to shine light in the darkness so that everyone who believes in him will not remain in darkness, John 12, 46. Jesus' task was not to judge the world, he says in John three seventeen, but to save the world. But you know, judgment and salvation for Jesus are two sides of the same coin. Because he's trying to save us so as not to have to judge us. But his first coming was about salvation. Second coming is all about judgment. Luke 5.32, Jesus said, I came to call sinners to repentance. Call us to repentance to spare us from the fires of judgment. And so when we see in John or in Luke 12, 49, I've come to cast fire upon the earth. And he says, and how I wish it were already kindled. Here we see Jesus, the Son of God, God in flesh, in his humanity, saying, I wish it were already kindled. Kindle the fire. That's how you, you light that lighter. Get it going. I wish it was already going. In other words, he's saying, it's yet future. I haven't kindled the fire yet. What will be the kindled of the fire? How I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism, he says, to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. A baptism to undergo. Jesus has already been baptized up to this. He's baptized in chapter 3. In fact, John the Baptist who baptized him said, there's coming the fire of judgment. He said, I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That there's fire coming of judgment. So Jesus is not saying I need to go get baptized. If you would, if you'd like to follow with me, I'm going to go just one gospel to the left and Mark chapter 10 and get the parallel passage here and show you that there is such a thing as a dry baptism. By the way, the word baptism itself means to fully immerse. It means to go completely underwater. It means to be overwhelmed. We typically think of baptism as, as water, 
John, or Luke is not using it in the sense of water here, but the word itself means to be completely immersed. Now, some of you are going, well, I was christened as a child. I just had water poured over my head. Or others of you were sprinkled. It's okay. I'm not here to call your baptism into question. That's all good. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And make sure you're dunked and held under for a few seconds at a Baptist church. It's not there. <laughs> Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Okay, we're not here to argue baptism here. I didn't mean to. So some of your, your mind is gone right now. Just way off. What did he, is he questioning my salvation? No, I'm not. Sometimes the word itself, just knowing what it means, completely immersed, it means everything in this context. But in Mark chapter 10, verse 38, Jesus is speaking to, the, to James and John who wanted to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. John 10, 38. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. The cup that I drink is not so much the, the literal cup, it's the faith that I must suffer. The death that I'm going to face, yes, you guys too will die for your faith. You indeed, uh, the cup that I drink, you will drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. He's speaking of the death of himself. He's speaking of being fully immersed in death. Not being beat up, not having blood drawn from his veins and, and having it, it sewn back up so that he can say he shed his blood. Jesus will be baptized in death. That's what Luke chapter 12 verse 50 is saying. Jesus is saying, I have a baptism to undergo. That's the fire, by the way, he's talking about. And he's saying, I wish it were already kindled. I need to get to Jerusalem and get this underway. I have a baptism, a distress, an overwhelming situation I must face. It's one of what we call the divine musts that Jesus must face. There are certain things that Jesus had to do. In fact, everything Jesus did, he had to do. Nothing's random. He did nothing willy-nilly. He came to earth to go to this place, to be in this place, to teach this passage, to say what he said, to make his way into Jerusalem on the day he did, to die on the day he did, the way he did, to shed the blood the way he did, on the cross. And he is saying, I have a baptism to undergo. And notice this, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. So if you'd have known this, and no one did, no one understood what Jesus was going to go through, even though he told them, no one would have asked him, or if they did ask him, Jesus, are you nervous about what's going to happen? Jesus' answer would not have been, yeah, it's nothing, it's just a day, six hours, hanging on a cross, happens to a lot of people. He wouldn't have said that. He says right here, how distressed I am. He doesn't say I have moments of horrible stress. It means to be gripped with fear. Now, just to make sure you know, Jesus is not worried about the crucifixion itself. He does not fear man. Jesus' death on that cross has to do with enduring all the wrath of God because of what you did, because of what I did. He is going to endure the entire wrath of God for sinners and how distressed he was up to the time that it began to be accomplished you to think about that for a second people wear crosses on their on their neck and sometimes they wear a, a crucifix where jesus is still there and, and we talk about the cross and we look at a cross behind me uh, it's there it's we're almost inundated with the cross and that's a good thing but don't ever forget what that cross represents you 
your filthy life, your filthy, horrible sins. Some of you don't want to recognize how horribly filthy you are. You don't want to be told that. No one does. Most people think they're good people. Most people think, I've never done anything like that. I don't want to go to a church and be called a sinner. But you are. You might not act out all that you think, but it's there, isn't it? That putrefaction, that rotting death inside of you, the anger that you feel, the victim card you play to try to bring people to feel sorry for you. Oh, I was abused. I was hurt. You hurt my feelings. Victim card. Put it away. It's a joker. You're angry at someone. You want them out of the way. You're not going to kill them, but you're not going to shed a tear when somebody dies. Somebody cuts you off. I hope they get in a wreck. Don't want them to get hurt or anything, but I hope they get in a wreck. Someone's speeding. I hope a cop gets them right now. Justice prevails, you know, because you've never sped. You want revenge. You think, you may not say foul words, but you think it. My grandmother, she was such a, an amazing woman. I, I wasn't sure she sinned. She, she did, mind you. Um, and when she came down with Alzheimer's, my parents took care of her. Words came out of my grandmother's mouth that no one had ever heard. But we didn't know she knew those words. She was not who she once was. And I remembered, no, my grandmother's a sinner too. She was godly enough woman to never say those things. But with Alzheimer's, it's all gone, isn't it? There's, it's just not there to protect you anymore. Uh, you wonder, where did the Spirit of God go? I, I don't know. I wonder that too. But it was there even in her, even in the best of us. Oh, we think we're, one, we're among the best. Our sin is what is so horrible. And we must talk about it, my friends. We must talk about it so that you understand the solution is in Jesus Christ. That's why he came. He came and he was distressed up to the point because he was going to take on the punishment for your sins. For my sins. And how distressed, how gripped with fear I am. I have to face my own father. That's why the night before he died, he prayed three times. Father, if it be possible, will you please remove this cup from me? And the answer our Lord and Savior got was no, no, no. All three occasions. And Jesus' response, nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. And God's will was done. Jesus took on the wrath of God to pay our fine. And Jesus says in verse 51, do you suppose that I came to bring peace on the earth? What if Jesus would have asked you that? Hey, Lance, you think I came here to bring peace? Uh, Is this a trick question, Jesus? I think so. No. Nope. I didn't come to bring peace, Jesus says. Well, let's, let's, let's check that out. Look over at Luke chapter 2, verse 14. When Jesus was born, uh, the announcement went out. The angels came and told the... the uh, uh, the one angel came who was with the heavenly host of angels, came and told the shepherds in the field, go into Bethlehem. Savior is born to you this day, Christ Jesus. 
Luke 2.14, glory to God in the highest and on earth. Now, if you have a King James Version, you're going to be misled a little bit here. Not lied to, but misled. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. It's not that Jesus was born and now there's goodwill towards men. That didn't happen then or now. What happened was when the peace of God was born, God sent his peace on peace on earth, peace among men, which men with whom he is pleased. There's peace among God's people. Romans 5:1 says that Jesus Christ is our peace between us and God. Now think about this. A peace between us and God means that when we are born, your cute little beautiful baby, when that baby is born, that baby is an enemy of God. Hard to think that way, isn't it? Lord, don't you think my baby's cute? Isn't it a gift? Yes. Made in God's image? Yes. But a sinner extraordinaire. I mean, if that baby had any motor skills he or she would grab your neck and say feed me or I won't let go (laughs) you've seen angry babies they're born that way they're conceived that way we are born enemies of God and the only way we can find peace with God is receiving Jesus Christ he is our peace Romans 5.1 Jesus is our peace. God over there, you and I over there, Jesus came and brokered a peace deal. We're sinners, all of this sin between us and God, Jesus comes and pays the fine. And now we're right with God. He is our peace and He is the only peace that there is. Do you suppose I came to grant peace on the earth? I tell you no, but rather division. I came to grant division, to give division on the earth. He says, from now on, five members in one household will be divided. See if this strikes you as true at Thanksgiving and Christmas time, around the dinner table. From now on, five members of one household will be divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law, she's against everybody, against daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That's a really dumb joke because my, my mother-in-law is not like that at all. But, you know, you just got to say it. Division. You're experiencing this. You have families. You're a believer and someone else in your family is not. Every Thanksgiving you go through it. Every Christmas. You may have someone in your family who's gay. They're homosexual. They want to bring their significant other. And you're thinking, ah. Now, it's one thing if they call themselves Christians It's another thing entirely if they say they're not. What do we do? What do we do with our children? Or someone who's living in an adulterous relationship, bringing their other significant other. They may not be gay, but they're living in sin. Are we supposed to overlook that too? Is the gay person more sinful than the the heterosexual pervert? No, it's all sin. How much are you going to put up with? You got to draw a line, don't you? When you draw a line, that's divisive. You might hear from your parents, why can't you just get over and come have dinner with us? Why can't we all just love each other? I'm sorry, Mom. That is an offense. I can't do that. I won't do that. 
Again, if they're calling themselves believers and living like that, that's when you can't. If they make no claim to be a believer, go meet with them. It's an evangelistic opportunity. Some of you will never return to this church because of what I just said. Believe me, every time I say that, someone leaves. Maybe not in the middle of the service, but they let me know. I will never do that. Because maybe it's your own child. And you think, well, I'm never going to not eat with my child. I guess the question is, is who are you more committed to? Your child or your Christ? That's the question. And that's what Jesus is showing here. I came to bring division. There is peace on earth towards those who belong to God. But all of the rest are still at enmity with God. They are enemies of God. As enemies of God, are you and I supposed to make friends with the enemies of God? I know you don't like them, Lord. I know you disapprove of them, but I kind of like them. Mm, I don't think you want to be on that side. Can you love them? Of course you can love them with the truth. Doesn't mean you ignore them. Doesn't mean you're rude to them. Never be rude to someone for any reason. Love them with the truth. Jesus came to bring division. In the United States of America, uh, we see a little bit of it, but go try to talk about Jesus in a Muslim country. You might get killed. Go try to talk about Jesus in China. See how far that goes. Unless you're in the underground sharing the gospel there. Just bring it up in the next conversation and see if that conversation continues. Jesus Christ, and it's not a a curse word, a punchline, an exclamation. Just bring up his name and see what happens. Jesus divides from the get-go. The very name of Jesus is offensive. Those who might be able to say the word God can get God out, but Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, next time someone speaks about God, say, you mean mean Jesus of Nazareth? the Messiah, the Christ of God. See where that conversation goes from there. Might be in your family. You always got to bring it up, don't you, Lance? We can't just have a regular dinner without you bringing it up. No. That's who I am. You invite me to dinner, that's who I am. You bring Jesus. I had one lady tell me, she said, we don't go anywhere without our dog. If our dog isn't invited, we're not invited. They've never been to our house. (laughs) Never will be. (laughs) but I wish people would say that about their Christ if you're offended by the Lord God Almighty then you will be offended by me Jesus is having a conversation in John chapter 7 with his brothers and they're saying why don't you go up to to the feast with all your other people they're being sarcastic with him this would include James not James the brother of John but James his his half brother who later came to know Jesus as God and Savior and Jesus said you can go anywhere you want I can't he said the world hates me because I testify that its deeds are evil. John 7, 7. And people will hate you for the same reason. I promise you there are a bunch of people out there today who are once in this church that hate Lance Waldy because I call them sinners. And I don't apologize, and I will continue to do it. But I call you sinners so that you know what your problem is so that I can tell you who the solution is, and it's Jesus Christ. Believe in him and you shall be saved. Do I stop being a sinner? No, you start being saved. Your sanctification process has begun. There's good news for you. 
And so Jesus says, verse 54, he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming. And so it turns out, when you see a south wind blowing, you say it will be a hot day. And it turns out that way. In other words, you're all pretty good amateur meteorologists. You see something, a sign, and it tells you that's what's going to happen. We do that. How many of you have weather apps? You check the weather app a little more than often than once a day. Maybe once an hour checking the weather. And, and, you, and you talk to people about it. And you might argue with your spouse that your app says this and her app says that. Cheryl and I got a little tiff. We were up in uh, Utah and I was going, well, my app says this. Well, which one are you using? I'm using Weatherbug. Well, I'm using the Weather Channel. Well, it says this. Well, mine says that. This says rain, but mine's got sunny sky pictures. Apps. We follow the apps. We're looking, we're predicting weather. And we're pretty good at it. We can see. South wind blows. It's going to be hot. In Israel, south wind comes out of the Arabian desert. It's going to be a hot day. Look over in the west. Sun hits the sky a certain way. You know, there's rain coming. Right now, it's hurricane season. We track those hurricanes, don't we? And we check them regularly. I want you to think about that every time you, you put into practice what Jesus is saying. In other words, he's saying with a little bit of information, you're pretty accurate in predicting the weather. You hypocrites. Verse 56, there's another reason they don't like him. He called us a name. He doesn't say, you guys are a little bit bit off. He doesn't say you're thick-headed. He doesn't say you're a little bit... He just calls them hypocrites. You're a bunch of actors is what he calls them. That's what hypocrite is. Hypocrite plays the actor role. Acting. You act one way, but you really are another way. That's a terrible insult. You can predict the weather, you hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky. Why do you not analyze the present time? Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I was born from a virgin. I have come onto the earth. I have fulfilled hundreds of prophecies up to this point. I heal the blind. I've made sick people well. I've taken demon, taken demons and flushed them out of human beings. You credited Satan for my work. I've raised the dead. I was preceded by the great John the Baptist, the one that Isaiah said would prepare my way. You people can predict the weather, but you can't look at the prophecies and look at the way I've conducted myself and what I do and not see that I'm the Messiah. People do the same thing today. They're brilliant scientists. They make predictions about astronomy. They can see the signs. They can see this. They can see that. Give them a prophecy written in 600 B.C. Show them how it's fulfilled in one man in the first century. Oh, we don't believe that. That prophecy must have been written after it actually occurred. Well, that's convenient, isn't it? The prophecies of Jesus that were written hundreds of years before his birth actually were written after he was born. (laughs) Go tell the Dead Sea Scrolls that. Because they have all those books of the Old Testament that date 250 B.C. The writings that are based on writings written 600 and 700 B.C. So how can something written in 250 B.C. or at least preserved back, dating back to 250 B.C. in the Dead Sea Cave Scroll, Dead Sea Scrolls, Dead Sea Caves, I should say. How can that have been written after the first century? Well, it can't. Well, then Jesus is the Christ. There is no other conclusion. It's not even complicated. 
It's only complicated to people that want to make their own God, who don't want Jesus to be the Christ, who want to live life on their terms. Jesus came to bring division, folks. When you stand for this, you will be divided against everyone who does not believe it, who does not want it. And Jesus says, you hypocrites. You can analyze the appearance of the earth with with just a little bit of information, but all of this multiplicity, plethora of information you have about me and you can't make. But he doesn't say you can't make the decision. He's telling them you won't make it. That's why he calls them hypocrites. Verse 57, and why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? Again, this is going to be one of those questions. This is why people hate you. If you're, if you're trying to be Jesus' life coach, you'll say, now, Jesus, look, you asked a question there that, that makes people not like you. You know, we want, to, we want to beef you up, gloss you up, make you look better. Don't ask sarcastic questions like that, Jesus. So people tell me as a preacher. So Lance, if you want people to like you, stop right there. Not my goal. Not my goal to make people like I mean, I want people to like me. What's not to like? I mean, come on. <laughs> But if I have to water down the doctrine of of God's word, no, I'm not interested. Why do you not even, Jesus asked, on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him. In other words, he is picturing two people. One man owes another guy. A owes B $10,000. Jesus is saying, fix it now. Because B is going to take you to the magistrate. And when you get there, because you do owe him $10,000, when you get to the magistrate, he's going to say, yes, clearly, there is evidence here that you owe him $10,000. I'm sending you to the judge. That's what he says there. On your way there, make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge. And the judge turn you over to the officer. And the officer throw you into prison. So you've had a hearing with the magistrate. Magistrate says, okay, we're taking you to the judge. The judge says you owe him $10,000. Turns him over to the warden of the the prison. There you will stay until a couple years. You serve your time. I say to you, verse 59, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. What is Jesus saying? He is saying this. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. While we have breath, everybody do this. Are you alive? Some of you, that's the first breath you've taken in the last 30 minutes. I'm alive. I'm here. While you have breath, get right with God. Right here, right now. Tell him what he already knows. God, I've fallen short of your glory. I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. Make it right. Remember, he's over there. You and I are over there. All of this sin in between while you have breath, fix that debt. I know a guy who will pay your debt. His name is Jesus from the town of Nazareth. Called the Messiah, the Christ. He pays debts. How can I get my debt paid, Lance? Believe. Receive. Jesus. Is that it? Yeah, it is it. Because you see that cross? That represents where he died. God demands death. What are the wages of sin, class? Death. Jesus paid that sin, death on the cross. It was his baptism. It was the fire he wished would be kindled. I'm going to do that. 
I'm going to pay your penalty. If we're all sinners and fall short of God's glory, and death is the wages of sin, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. You just want to break out in that song? I know Sherry Klein does. Break out and... All to Jesus. He paid it. Paid it. What are you saying, Lance? I'm saying that if you went to your little Excel spreadsheet and checked the last little box and see what it said, it says, paid in full. And there is no more enmity between you and God. You over there and God over there, you're all one in Christ. Fix that today, now. You might say, well, I don't, you don't know what I've done. God can't forgive me. Oh, I'm telling you, listen to me. I don't care what you've done. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, whoever you are, whatever you do, you think I'm going to lie to you? May God strike me down if I'm lying. Whatever you've done, no matter how many times you've done it, Jesus' blood washes it away. You will be saved. You confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's what Jesus is saying. Pay that debt now. You owe it. In real life, don't let yourself go before a judge if you're guilty because you're going to be thrown in jail and you're never going to get out. In the spiritual world, in our spiritual life, you owe God. We owe God the debt of sin, of, I should say of death. Good news. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say when you decided to be good. It doesn't say when you, when you finally got it all together, God saved you. While you were living in your wretched sinfulness. While you were Adolf Hitler killing, murdering six million people. While you were in that, Christ died for you. Folks, the death of Jesus doesn't save everyone. It's there to save those who will receive him. Don't fall for that heresy that people say, well, Jesus died. I know he loves me. No, that's not what it says at all. We must receive him to get the benefit of what he did for us. Just because he did it doesn't mean you're saved. Just because Jesus died on that cross does not mean that you are saved. You are still an enemy of God and you must receive Jesus to be saved. How can I do it? You don't even have to close your eyes. Lord Jesus, will you be my savior? I'm a sinner. Will you save me? Do you know that every time someone prays that in sincerity, the answer is yes. John, John chapter, what is it, 6, verse 37? I think it's six thirty-seven. That he will in no way cast out those who come to him in faith. No one is said no to. No one. He would say yes to me? Yes, whoever you are. If Adolf Hitler himself were able to walk through and say, would he say yes to me? Hey, Adolf, yes, he would. And everything you've done would be forgiven. Not excused, Forgiven. Because Jesus paid the penalty on the cross. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Let's pray. Lord, the fire of judgment you kindled. You took it. 
You took it on the cross. May we be overwhelmed by that thought that you died for us. May we be convicted to receive you, to believe you, to trust you, to have the effects of your death flooded over our lives, our sinful, miserable, wretched lives, so that you would declare us righteous as you do through faith. If there be one here today, Lord, maybe someone's coming, come in and they thought they were Christian. Today they've been told otherwise. But they leave here truly saved. For those of us who did come in saved, may we go out all the more humbled for who you are and what we are. Sinners, yes. But sinners who have received the blood sacrifice of your son. We must mean something. If you died for us, may we be overwhelmed at that thought and offer you the praise and the worship that you so deserve. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May God bless you and keep you as you go. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 